Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is about school transformation in Arizona. How can a space be designed to improve learning? What does that process look like? And what makes space a tool for learning? Today, we find out all about how well-designed facilities can elevate a learning experience. Our co-host is Taryn Kinney, a principal at DLR Group. We'll chat first with her and learn how organizational psychology is used in design. And later in the show, we have Philip Nowlin, the principal at Canyon View High School. He'll chat with us about how he and Taryn collaborated to create change and make a truly unique high school. Before we dive in, some quick news from the Design Museum. Our Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis, is leading her Diversity in Action sessions. This is a three-month course where you can participate in engaging conversations to learn how to create curious leaders with tools and resources to take action. These training sessions will show why diversity, equity, and inclusion can create better design outcomes. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to learn more about the training and reserve your spot. Now onto the show. Have you ever wondered how a school can be designed to make learning more impactful? That maybe the traditional brick and mortar layout isn't the right space for creativity and engagement in the classroom. So what does the right setting look like for students to reach their full potential? To learn how this change can happen, we have Taryn Kinney. Taryn has her master's from Teachers College at Columbia in organizational psychology, specializing in change leadership. She's a principal at DLR Group, where she created BOLD, capital B-O-L-D, a process grounded in decades of successful, sustainable change efforts that bridges organization, learning, and design to ensure the educator and learner's success. Taryn's designs create exceptional learning environments. Taryn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I'm super excited for this topic. To start, I'm just so curious. I want to get a sense of your background in organizational psychology. What is it and how do you incorporate that and the work that you do in educational spaces? Sure. So I have to back up a little bit before the organizational psychology because I'm also an architect. I actually went, did my undergraduate, um, my BARC at Rice University in architecture. And I did that for not quite 20 years before I went back to Columbia and did the degree in organizational psychology. So the latter came out of the former. Yeah. What spurred you to want to go in that direction? Yeah. So a lot of frustration, <laughs> honestly. Um, so I got into design because of the impact on human behavior, because of the kind of the feelings and the just overall improvement of life conditions, all of that, that a space can bring. However, in my professional experience, it didn't always work out that way for a number of reasons. And I found once I started working in education, uh, which I started doing maybe seven years into my career, so I did a lot of other things first. I loved working in education. There are all these permissions to have fun with the design, to use color, to actually think about the users that are moving into the building and try to do what's best for them, right? However, there are so many limits on educators. There's legislation, there's safety concerns, 
There's uh, budgetary requirements. There are so many rules that, to be quite honest, aren't always made in the best interest of kids and teachers. So there was just a lot of frustration that came out of being on the design side, working with educators, learning what they really wanted to do, what they knew was best for kids, designing space to support that, and then going back after they had moved into the building and seeing that, oh, wait, they actually weren't able to reach those goals that they had imagined. They weren't able to change their daily patterns, uh, their daily routines to really reach that kind of future vision for learning that they had worked through with us and we had designed the building for. So there was that missed opportunity, but even more so there was this misalignment between the design of the space and the learning they wanted to see, which has other implications and kind of negative outcomes. Getting the degree in organizational psychology was really an effort to kind of marry up these two things and try to get them to work together. Can you explain organizational psychology for us? And then I want to know like how that does like dovetail into design. Yeah. So, so organizational psychology came out of social psychology. Uh, it started in kind of in the industrial world, right? Uh, when things were getting uh, very kind of mechanized and, and really started seeing eff efficiencies could be impacted by working with the people that were working in the factories, all of that. So it's something that's grown over time, but there is a psychologist named Kurt Lewin that has a formula. They like to do these formulas that look mathematical, but aren't really. And he talks about how behavior is a function of the person in their environment, the person being the individual. So you have to not only work with the human beings, the kind of psychology of the individual, their motivations, their skills, all of that, but you also have to look at the environment they're in. So for me as an architect in my past life, I would say, oh, the environment, that's the physical environment. If you've got one side of the equation. Yeah, if we change that, then that'll change the behaviors, right? But it's not just the physical environment, it's the organizational environment. It's, uh, again, kind of the structures and systems you have in place. It's it's everything from, do you know what your role is when you come to work every day? Do you know what's expected of you? Do you know how you're going to be evaluated? Do you know the way, the proper ways to communicate with your colleagues? There are all these things that are above the table, are overt. And then there's also the covert side, all the under the table right, people things. People are so complex. People are so complex. And there's all the things that aren't said, all the body language, all the things that can get really complicated because of people interacting with people. So it's it's kind of all of that, right? Yeah, wow. Um, it's a lot. Thinking in, in that way, can you help us build that relationship between space and learning? Sure, sure. So I would say that education design in the past was, was not necessarily so interesting, right? It was, okay, um, we need some more classrooms because we need to fit some more bodies in the room. And there, again, are some real mathematical ways you can calculate how many kids can fit in a building. And we'd be hired. And oftentimes, we would only be allowed to speak to the director of facilities or the maintenance department that keeps up the building, the real kind of brick and mortar type components. Over the last 
20 years, I would say we've, we've had a little bit more access and a little bit more freedom to actually work with the users, the, the teachers, and oftentimes now the students themselves, there's been a shift. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a shift to say like, Hey, this, the students are the clients here. Obviously that can expand to the parents and the greater community, but the students are kind of the initial client, right? So it has gotten much more interesting. It also, there has been a huge shift because of technology, right? The obvious, there's just been a huge paradigm in how people access information. You know, it used to be that the teacher was the keeper of the information, the source of the information. They decided when things were delivered, how they were delivered, and that was it, right? Now, kids can access information in all sorts of ways. So what do we really need to teach them? How do we need to teach them? What are we preparing them for in terms of what are the skill sets they actually need to have when they leave school and go into the real world? So that becomes a whole a whole new conversation, right? These are all new skill sets. With that conversation, there's a whole reevaluation of how people learn best. And this gets a little confusing, and I know this. I'm having a long response to your answer. I, I love this, though. This is great. <laughs> so there's all sorts of learning theory, right, about how people learn best. And there, there are tons of sources, but many of them overlap, and some of them overlap with social psychology as well. But many of them have a cycle of learning that you go through. And the starting point usually is not this void, empty vessel where you don't know anything, right? We all have concrete experiences that we come to new information with. We receive some kind of new information. We compare it against what we know already. We might go do some research or talk to others and say, well, what do you think about this? What are, what have people written? What have people blogged about, whatever, then we might go test it out and kind of say, well, this is what I heard, but this is what I know. How do these things come together? And then we might even test it. And that could be a built experiment. That could be another conversation. It could be writing, some kind of exploration of that. And after we do that, we have our own new experience. That experience and the reflection on that experience is how we learn best. There are a million different versions of this, but in simple terms, it's called a learning cycle. So that learning cycle, even though it's proven to work and all these theorists have said this is the way we learn, it's not what's typically done in most traditional classrooms. Most traditional classrooms are based on kind of a passive learning, teachers talking, students receiving, taking notes. That type of learning is very well supported in a box, in a classroom where there's a front of the classroom, the teacher's at the front, the students are in one area. It's not democratic. It's, you know, it's all about the kind of one person's in charge, one person has the information, everybody else is passive and receiving. Can you tell me about BOLD, that whole concept, how how you start it, how it works? Sure. It's it's been a long time coming. Um, So I actually had the opportunity in 2012 to work with an educator named Dr. Marilyn Dennison. Uh, At the time, she worked at a school district in Dallas uh, called Capel ISD. And we, she was my client at the time, and we got to design an elementary school called Richard J. Lee Elementary. Check it out. It's incredible. That school district had been doing a lot of transformation 
on the teaching and learning side for a long time. They had a very visionary superintendent. Marilyn was their assistant superintendent of curriculum instruction. So she took all the vision and actually implemented it on the teaching and learning side of things. That superintendent said, hey, we're going to design this new elementary school. I want curriculum to run this, not facilities. So I got to work directly with Marilyn. Facilities was there, but they were very kind of like, nope, this is this is your show, Marilyn. You run this. We worked with a group of about 20 educators, all classroom teachers, which doesn't typically happen. They were already primed to do something interesting because they had already been doing interesting things on the teaching and learning side of things. So they were great to work with. We had so much fun. And as we worked through the design, we did a number of things that, that kind of kept it innovative. We, uh, we talked about instead of when we started programming and you just start a spreadsheet and you know say, okay, how many rooms do you need and how many this? We actually had these bubble diagrams where I said, okay, what are the group sizes that you want? And how often will you be meeting with them? And, and what does that actually feel like? Is it a soft space? Is it a hard space? What are the activities you're doing? So we did all this and, and it was a great design. However, at the same time, I was working with two other clients. They all were doing innovative things in terms of the building. As these three projects progressed, Maryland succeeded and actually implemented the change and the other two didn't. And there were a number of reasons. At one of the districts, uh, leadership moved and, and the whole thing kind of shifted when the new leader came in. Uh, at the other school, there were, there were some other things that had gone on. And I basically saw that when you don't have that strong and consistent support on the district side of things, these changes don't, don't actually get implemented. And it's one of those things that people just don't realize what it takes to change human behavior. And they also don't realize what it takes to open a new building. So we created BOLD to really provide that support. And it is, BOLD stands for, as you said earlier, bridging organization learning and design. It, it works across all the siloed organizations, but it really implements a proven change process. And there's a very kind of systematic way we work through it. It's actually based on the Berkeley model for organizational performance and change. So it's a it's a model that's been highly researched, mostly on the industry commercial side of things, not as much in education, but we've taken that and have developed a five-step process to really create this organizational framework before a campus moves into their new building. You get everything worked out ahead of time. It's a pretty intense process. I mean, it's a lot of figuring out what their values are, figuring out what their priorities are, writing those down, developing the systems, developing the structures, and doing it in a way so that when they hire their teachers, those teachers know what they're expected to do every day. They know what teaching and learning is going to look like. They know how they're going to be supported. They know how they're going to be measured. And oh, by the way, they also know how the system is going to be reviewed and updated. And, and they're part of that process as well. And that's how it's all kind of get marrying, right? The curriculum, their work, and the space. Exactly. Yeah. And we have a diverse team that does that. So Marilyn, I hired Marilyn a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so she's uh, she's on our team. So she's my you know educator lead. 
classroom teacher, has been a principal, you know, has been at all the levels. Uh, I also have Rachel French, who is currently working on her PhD with the University of Melbourne, uh, doing fascinating research specifically around how teachers transition into innovative learning environments. So we have this kind of three-part team that we all have different strengths and kind of look at things differently. And it just works really well for our clients, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And I'm excited to, in our next segment, to kind of dig into an actual school. So uh, thank you. And I'll let our listeners know to see more of Taryn's work. You can check out dlrgroup.com. And Taryn, please stick around and we'll bring Philip Nowlin from Canyon View High School into the conversation. Thank you, Sam. Awesome. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Philip Nowen. Philip is the principal at Canyon View High School. He collaborated with Taryn through the change process to develop a clear path that would allow students and educators to make the best use of their space. A lot of times change is hard, but the process worked and Canyon View High School earned the K through 12 industry's top honor, the Association for Learning Environments, James D. McConnell Award in 2019. Congratulations. And Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. I, I love this topic and Taryn really schooled us in a lot of this work. So I'm excited to hear about how you all collaborated. But first, I'm hoping you can kind of get us into Canyon View High School. Like bring us there. This is audio format, but maybe you can kind of like, what's a day like there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, if you're listening, you know, close your eyes and uh, imagine a school where you can do anything and you can use any space that you want and you can move it and reshape it to however you want to deliver instruction or if you're a student, however you want to receive instruction. And that's what Canyon View is. We're a uh, career pathway school. So we've got six different career pathways that each have industry level technology. So we've got a film and TV studio where green screen, I mean, you name it, control room, everything. So we've got a barn and a greenhouse. So just when you come to Canyon View High School, just imagine anything and everything that you can do educationally. And uh, that's what we look like. So we've got vibrant colors. We've got glass or, or windows everywhere. So there's a lot of natural light. All the furniture is on casters or on wheels so you can move around. We've got whiteboard uh, top tables where you can take markers and, and write whatever you want there. Uh, we've got walls that move, got sound curtains, we've got uh, comfy chairs. 
that are kind of what you would see in your living room. It's just an amazing place to be at and to be a part of. And I'm blessed to have this opportunity to be the principal of an innovative school such as Canyon View High School. Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm there in my mind and I want to stay there because <laughs> it sounds sounds incredible. Thank you for that. Uh, I wonder if you could share a bit, you know, now we got to kind of go back in time uh, and think about, you know, Taryn and I were talking about sort of like traditional school settings. So can you tell me like kind of what you were realizing wasn't working in those traditional school settings and, and kind of what necessitated like change of, at this level? Yeah. So a little background, our district is has five high schools. Um, before we built Canyon View, we only had four high schools. Uh, I had gone to high school in a traditional format. I had taught in a traditional high school. But as I became an administrator, I went to Verado High School, which kind of piloted the concept of three walls. And so we had some innovation there, but it wasn't nearly uh, what the level we have here at Canyon View High School. And so the impetus really behind designing Canyon View High School and really transitioning from a more traditional mindset was we put together these design charrettes and we brought students and teachers and administrators and community members and industry partners together. And the question was, what does the 21st century high school look like? Uh, what what did you have in your high school that you liked? What didn't you have in your high school or educational experience that you wish you would have had? And what we did is we said, Let, let's take the cuffs off. There's no ceiling. There's no barriers. Just dream what you can dream. And then let's figure out if we can make it work. And so that was how we started the design journey of Canyon View High School. Um, and as a planning principal, I had an opportunity to go see a lot of different high schools around the nation. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit later probably about the process and the partnership between me and Taryn and our administrative team, but they actually came with us on some of those uh, trips and we were able to really look at what are some of the cool things that are happening at other schools that have been innovative uh, and then how does that merge with the ideas that we started to really imagine as far as making this school really the 21st century school and also making it flexible so that in 50, 60 years, it's not out of date. Um, but that we can move with the times. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Taryn, maybe you can chime in with like, what, what was the, how'd the process start for you and the team there? Yeah, I wanted, and I have a follow-up question for Philip on this because yeah, oftentimes, please. so, you know, I started as a designer designing physical spaces and I still do that to an extent, but what I really enjoy and what I do a lot more of now is designing experiences. So with a group like Philip and the rest of the team that he worked with, they know what they know, right? They may want to do these flexible spaces that can work for the future environments, but they, again, they know what they know. So a lot of what I do is design these experiences to help them think outside the box. It has to be, it has to push them enough to elicit these new ideas, but not too much that they kind of shut down and go, oh no. And when you're saying design these experiences, you're talking about like creating the space for yeah. them to dream, right? The space and that that can be inputs, that can be exposures, that can be a lot of things. And that's kind of a question I want to put to Philip. Like, what was the most impactful experience you went through during this whole process in terms of maybe the outcome or, or the success you've seen at Canyon View? I mean, honestly, uh, the trips were, were hugely valuable and then the exercise that we did after the trips. So, I mean, we did some work before working with Taring and her and her bold team uh, before. Uh, and, and like you said, I mean, there's a ton of ideas that we, we tossed around and what does this look like and so on and so forth. But to really go see other spaces 
and the conversations that came about with my team as we were traveling with each other and looking at all these different schools, it really took us to the next level of what we could truly imagine. And it really led us to, um, and, and the planning that we did afterwards, like, I, I don't know, we went to Missouri Innovation Center and that was kind of the end of our last trip. And we were just tired. We, I mean, wore out from, from traveling planes, all that kind of stuff, and a little bit of wearing out of being around each other so much. But we were able to really toss everything that we saw and everything we had been thinking about and start to really categorize it and make sense of it in something that can actually be implemented. And then to start to talk about, well, you have this great idea. Idea, but what's the outcome that you want from this great idea? And that was a valuable experience that has translated into Canyon View becoming what we all had dreamed it could become. And obviously with COVID right now, that's kind of a damper because we don't have kids in the building right now. But um, even the culture that has been created has translated uh, to the virtual environment because of the culture that was created when we were here in person. So yeah, so to answer your question, th those trips coupled with having that time to really decompress and formalize our ideas around what we saw and the conversations that we had. I, we just, I never had talked about teaching and learning at that level uh, before in my career. Wow. That's so awesome. Yeah. What an amazing experience to be able to get inspired by so many different environments. And then, yeah, I mean, no one knows the, the, the school and the district and the kids better than you all to translate it then into something unique I wonder that in that process, this could be for both of you, like then where'd you go from there, right? You, you had these dreams, you had a vision. How did you translate that into some, whether it was objectives or, or steps forward or the design itself? Well, it's a multi-step process. <laughs> Canyon View happened over many years. I mean, it's a, it's a large high school. High schools uh, take time to design uh, as well as construct. So this one had a, a long planning process. So all the stuff Philip's talking about with the tours, they had community meetings, they had designed charrettes. So it was very intentional. There was a lot of work done in the programming stage. So I mentioned the programming we did on Richard J. Lee. For his, it was similar in that it was non-traditional, right? It was more about these learning activities and how often are you going to access them? It wasn't, okay, I need four English classrooms and three math classrooms. And, you know, it wasn't subject based. It wasn't that kind of conversation. And as Philip mentioned, they have a lot of moving walls. They have uh, walls that can make half classroom size, a full classroom size. They have some open spaces that if it's all open, gosh, is probably about the size of six classrooms, maybe. There's a curtain in the middle and there's some glass walls so you can partition that down, but you can also open it up. There were a lot of conversations in his school around uh, the outdoor environment because of where they're located outside of Phoenix. Uh, they were actually not only able to kind of do some interesting things, not spending money on interior hallways, but making all of that outdoors, but then also turning that around and saying, okay, what kind of learning can happen in these outdoor environments? And how can we build these positive relationships between kids and kids and teachers in these spaces? So all of that happens. Uh, and design. And then during the construction phase was really when we got to dive in with Philip and, and his new administrative team that he had hired to work on the bold piece, to work on all the kind of organizational framework piece. 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah, before we get into that, I'm just curious from you, Philip, you know, as you're seeing this translation to design, probably like seeing drawings and what was that experience like for you, right? Because you're seeing this vision, you know, kind of come alive on paper at least. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I, we had this activity and I like to think of it as a Lego activity, but basically you're taking these like styrofoam blocks and you're moving the blocks around to say, this building goes here, this building goes there. What will this look like? And then you're as an educator, you know, my language has been teaching and learning and then athletics. You know, that's my, you know, as a AP history teacher, as an administrator, as a coach, you know, that was my language. That's what we talk about. When I went into this process, all of a sudden I'm talking about soffits and, and design charrettes. And, you know, I'm talking, you know, I'm going to construction meetings and going to architecture meetings and they're talking about things that I'm, this, that wasn't my language. That wasn't my world. Um, So it was eye opening for me. Um, I got a crash course in construction and architectural design. It helped me grow as an educator. It's one of the things that I look at that if even if you're not building a new school, but you're going through some kind of refurbish or anything like that, I think it's important that you understand that language because you can communicate with those stakeholders or, or those partners what you need or and and you're able to really articulate that. Yeah, this may sound good to you, but it's not going to translate when I have kids on the campus and it's fourth hour and this and this is happening. So how can we a help me, but b help you? And 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 it takes both sides to be flexible and open minded. And so um, it it really was an eye opening experience. And I don't I don't know if I could ever be the principal of a regular building. <laughs> I was like, going to ask I, that I, actually. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think I could ever do that because. Um, I, I'm I'm too. I mean, I'm still thinking every day. What can we do next? Yeah, you know, so our, flexible. Our, right. Our our motto every summer as an administrative team, and even to our teachers, we're like, before they go into the summer, give us ideas. Like, don't don't put any kind of parameters around it. Just dream big and think big, and then we take that over the summer, and then we try to implement those ideas. So, um, it, it's fun. It's yeah, fun. it really seems like that design as we would maybe say, Taryn and our, I guess in our industry of like a design thinking approach has been infused, uh, which is oh, so exciting. Let's talk about Bold and about the teachers and the sort of like that change management, because as you said in the previous segment, Taryn, I often think like the students are like, of course, they are the, you know, the final client, but man, the educators, <laughs> what would we do without them? And so I know that's a lot of the work that you did together. I'd love to hear about that process um, in shaping that change. So one thing, as you've heard Philip talk about kind of all these processes and steps he went through, he had really had the benefit of being included in the design phase of his school. Not all principals get that, especially when there's a new building. Oftentimes they haven't hired that principal yet. So he had that consistency. He went on those design trips, but then closer to when the school was going to open, that's when he started hiring his assistant principal and his lead counselor and, you know, that kind of leadership group. Well, those folks hadn't been through that process. So then you have to build that knowledge and that trust and and just the mindset around being open-minded, 
doing things differently, risk taking all the, and then that's okay. And really trusting Philip that he's not going to get upset if you try something and it doesn't work. And so, so a lot of what we do is kind of trust building and building that buy-in. Yeah. It's like, it's training. Yeah, and right? it's hard. It, it is. Change is hard, right? So the way the bold process works, I always like to say, you know, people resist change, not because of change itself, but because of the unknown. So if we can fill all those buckets of unknown with known things, then the, it makes the change easier, right? So we work with the team. The first thing we do, you mentioned the learners. The first thing we do is help them identify what do they want the product to be? Any organization has a product. In the school, it's your learners. It's the skill sets they graduate with or leave your campus with. So we start with the learner profile and they develop that and they say, we want this skill, this skill, this skill, et cetera. And then we back plan from there and we even help them develop an educator profile. If these are the skills you want to build, what does the educator have to do? What skills do they have to have to do that? You can use that to hire your educators at that point. And then there's a series of other steps we go through really like I said earlier, kind of defining defining the expectations for how people are going to behave, what teaching and learning looks like, et cetera. It's, a, it's an intense process. Uh, Philip and his team, many of them had other jobs while they were doing this. Only a couple of them were full-time, but they really put a lot of time and energy into this process. Yeah. Philip, what did you hear from the educators as you're going through this process? So I, I'll talk about my immediate team first, and then I'll tell you, you know, what my teachers said. But my immediate team, they were surprised by a lot of things that I had talked about. Um, and uh, like, for instance, we don't have any bells. Uh, we have one that starts the day and one that ends of the day. Um, and, and then that is, um, it is, it's, it's intertwined with the design. It's intertwined with the pedagogy, right? So every, everything, it's, it's a big puzzle. And so, a, a lot of times people want to design great spaces, but if the pedagogy doesn't match, then what you'll have is a really nice design, pretty high school that will have some really awesome storage places. <laughs> and, and, and that's what you're going to have. And so the pedagogy has to, you know, so you have to think about how flexible and how open-minded are we going to be in all the things that we do and everything is intertwined. So, you know, just an example of telling them, hey, we're not going to have any bells and, you know, every classroom doesn't have uh, four walls. Oh, and by the way, we're not even going to call them classrooms. We're going to call them learning labs. You know, my team was just like, oh, and they were surprised. Um, they knew that it was, you know, I, I kind of gave everybody this. I, I think I did like a thousand elevator pitches over that first year, year and a half. I had to convince people to come and work for me. I had to convince students and parents to come and trust to bring their kids to the school. I had to convince leadership that this is the furniture that I wanted. It's like and a it's politician okay to let at that me. point. Yeah, you know, I'm convincing everybody of everything. So um, I, I think my initial team, re the reaction was shock. But then after that, especially going on the trips and what Taryn talked about is kind of, you know, first it was me and then it was training them. And it, and it really was a microcosm of what we have to do every year here at Canyonview High School. And so. Um, my team, you know, that when they saw some of these pieces and we had these conver these rich conversations, we really came together and they really could see the vision. And then from there, working with our teachers, you know, the first thing that I start with teachers is, 
what what define what teaching and learning is, define what good instruction is or great instruction is. And when they start to talk about the characteristics of those pieces, they are talking about the type of high school we have at Canyonview. They just don't know it yet, but you're automatically using their words against them. And so I commonly like to say, I'm not a big buy-in person. People like to use the term buy-in and, 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 and I don't get offended when people use that for themselves, but for me and for here at Canyonview High School, we don't, I, I don't preach buy-in, I preach commitment. Because to me, commitment is at a greater level. Buy-in is I got to convince you that this is the right thing to do. Commitment is this is what's best for kids. This is what's best for teaching and learning. This is something that you must commit yourself to. And if you cannot commit yourself here, uh, if you can't commit to this, then you can't work here. And, and, and that's literally what I, every single person that I hired, that we've hired, They've hear, heard the same thing. They All my employees can tell you, hey, if this is not something that you can get on board with, then you either you, you can't work here at Canyonview High School. I am curious, especially because I, you know, I went to a very traditional schools my, my whole life. If there's no bell, which I can kind of get behind, right? No bell. What is the organizing principle of like for a student to kind of move through their day? Yeah, so I, I would throw it back at you. There's there's no bells at your job, right? Right. Yeah. No. But how how do you figure out how to manage your day? Yeah, I have my list, my to do list. I've got my meetings. Yep. There you it look is. at your calendar. There it is. Things like that. We have a Google Suite, so all of our kids have Chromebooks. Uh, they have Gmail. They have Google Calendar. We teach them how to use those tools. Why do we have high schools that tell that say that we want to prepare them for college and career? Yet we structure them in a way that has not that's not even close to college or career. You don't when you went to college, you didn't go to college and they ring bells every time your class is over with. You know, so we have 50 we have six periods a day. We have 52 minute classes. The teachers know the time. The students know the time. And we call it a non bell schedule. And, you know, you're if you're on our campus, all of a sudden it's quiet. And then the next thing you know, you see, you know, 1400 kids walking around going to class. And what we've noticed is that kids have they they own their learning process at a greater level and they feel like they they try to treat the building better and they try to treat each other better because they feel like we've given them some trust. And so I always believe that if you put an animal in a cage, they're going to act like a caged animal. So why don't we take away some of these cages? Uh, Obviously, we have to have some parameters, but, you know, it it works. And, And I tell you this. I can I, when I go visit other schools and we have uh, administrative meetings that go to different buildings and everybody else has the bells and the music and all that and the announcements the inter- interrupt things. We don't have that at Canyonview High School. I don't I, I we we do announcements in the morning and then throughout the day we don't really do announcements unless it's an emergency. And um you know it's funny it, it, when I go to those other schools I realize there's so many distractions to learning throughout the day. So if you come to our building and then you go to a traditional school, you'll notice the distractions. We just become so numb to it because it's traditional learning. And that's how we've always done things. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. It's such a great conversation. Thank you both. And yeah, Philip, thanks so much for being here, sharing your experience. And I mean it. I, w- I want to come visit and I want to check out the school. Hey, you, we'll welcome you with open arms. Anytime that you want to come, you can come. <laughs> just let me know. Sounds awesome. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Taryn and Phillip's work at Canyon View High School, they have a great interview that they did for South by Southwest. We'll include a link in our show notes. 
Now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will kick us off. I guess my weekly dose this week is a bit more of like a concept, I guess. <laughs> um, it's been a little snowy around here, so um, I just loved learning about this concept called snackdown or snackdowns. Uh, or snowy neckdowns. I guess that's like the real term and then people shortened it. So snowy neckdowns. Uh, the term was coined by Street Blog's founder, Aaron Napperstek. Basically, as I understand it, uh, our roads and intersections are way wider than they need to be. And in fact, the more width and space there is on a, on a road, the faster folks think that they can drive on it. And that creates dangerous situations for pedestrians and cyclists. So ideally you want to narrow city streets as a form of like traffic calming to make streets safer for everyone. Uh, so when streets are narrower, people drive slower and they're generally more cautious, uh, which is all good. Uh, but how do we know how much to narrow them by? And that's where the snow helps. So when it snows and folks drive, you can clearly see like where the cars are driving and where they aren't. So this is particularly interesting and apparent uh, at intersections, right? So if you can imagine it, there's an intersection and you can clearly see where the tire tracks are of the cars, like where they drove. And then you see the undisturbed snow where they didn't. So you can very clearly see the unused or the excess road space. And so I guess the idea of Snackdown is that, you know, snow is extending the curb, so to speak. And planners and designers can use that snowy neck down or snack down to determine where possible modifications can be made to make streets safer. So I just love the idea of snow being a design tool. And uh, yeah, so check out snack downs. Okay, that's mine. That's not where I thought you <laughs> yeah, were we going, are some but okay. Here. Taryn, yeah, yeah. All right, you, you are up, it's your turn. Okay, so I have one that is design, but also is a, a little bit different, I think. So um, we're all in virtual world right now with COVID, all sorts of learning going on with that. I don't know if anybody has seen what they call the together mode from Microsoft Teams. It is a new tool they developed where instead of having the individual boxes, the Brady Bunch group scene that you usually have, they take all the people and cut them out and put them in rows like a lecture hall. And it's kind of a white background. You see little outlines of seats. And when I first saw this, I thought, oh my gosh, that's terrible. That's exactly what we talk with educators about how they right. shouldn't do. They shouldn't have kids in rows. It shouldn't be so hierarchical. But then you start getting into the research around why we're all tired from video conferencing and how hard it is on our brain. Literally, it's, it's like um, multitasking all the time. You're going from square to square. You're having to negotiate the backgrounds, everybody's backgrounds, and they're all different. And you're trying to read the body language and the cues, but you only have this little square. So Teams is reacting to our brains trying to reduce the fatigue that comes out of it, trying to make those interactions better. And while I don't really like the outcome right now, <laughs> <laughs> it is. I think it's a sign of where yeah. technology could go and how we could just kind of leapfrog ahead 
in terms of virtual interactions, making them more positive in the future, partly because of COVID, because of the pandemic. It's just this big catalyst to really make this work in a way that we need it to work. So I'm excited about the future. I think it's a sign of good development. Thanks for being here. This was such a great conversation. And yeah, I'm excited to keep talking and collaborating. There's, there's a lot to do here. Well, it's been really fun. I'm very passionate about what I do. Obviously, Philip is as well. So we always have fun. We love to share. Oh, thank you. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Sam. That's our show. I want to, again, thank Taryn Kinney and Philip Nowlin for joining us. And thank you all for listening. What an awesome conversation. We'll post links to their work and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, check out our book, Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. If you're interested in design, healthcare, technology, and the human experience, I highly recommend this book. Best stories of people living with limb loss and limb difference and how they worked with designers and became designers themselves as they designed their own prosthetic devices. And just for us, you know, speaking for myself and my co-author, Amanda Hawkins, Amanda and I working with the limb loss and the prosthetics community was just a joy and a real important moment in my life. And just, I'm so proud of everything that we pulled together as a community, as a team uh, for this book. So check it out. Uh, you can find it on our website. You can always find the latest from Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter. Uh, so you can sign up for that on our website and always get the latest from Design Museum in your inbox. This episode was written, produced, and edited by the amazing Amor Yates, along with our producer, Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. I'm Sam Aquilano. This was Design is Everywhere. Thank you for joining us.